Good morning, Lighthouse. Probably always a little funny out there. We're having to wait for the uh, monitors to kick our names and do all that stuff up there. But want to welcome our online audience. And everybody ready to worship? We're going to work on kicking it up a notch here, okay?
Oh my gosh, one more. Do not I'm come so, up I'm here. I'm so excited. Can I come up and sing with you? We're knocking out four this morning. Yeah, I'll sorry. turn my mic off. Everything is mixed up now.
Jeff can come up. Oh, man, you just wanted me to cry before we got started this morning. Oh, church, as I'm waiting for my imaginary pulpit to ride up and the words of the sermon that will ride up with my pulpit, I just want you guys to know something this morning, that if you're not excited to be in the house of the Lord, then I'm probably going to be a little bit too much for you, because the last few weeks, the last few months... The last few years have been uh, very interesting, and uh, I keep asking the Lord, really? I got it. I got it from here, man. You did a fabulous job. You and too. thank you for telling me the wrong song. That, that was very relaxing, coming up there at the wrong time. Um, I, trust me, I need to be kept on my toes around here. You guys all know that uh, I am someone that's pretty old school. I like a pulpit. I like notes, um, although it's getting harder to read them without glasses. It just won't be as cool when I put glasses on, but it's probably going to happen pretty soon as well. Um, I just want to thank you guys for giving me the opportunity to even have the temporary title of interim pastor, interim senior pastor, anything to serve you guys. As you guys know, my heart is service. Like, I, I really want the church to realize something. I am, I'm so about service that having my friend Rod speak last week, you know, the privilege of doing chaplaincy with Rod the last few years was I got a chance to see a man serve. I mean, when we serve the police department, we're volunteers. And even talking with people who know stuff about the police department, I mean, it's a, it's a daunting task to serve the police department in the sense that these people's lives are on the line every day, and so they're just not that apt to let people in, right? People always show up and have something they want or need from the police but someone who says, I'm literally there just to serve you, um, it takes time to earn that. And so even with this, I want you guys to realize, I got I as much time as you need to earn anything, but I want you to know something. When Rod called me an expert last week at fishing, a lot of you were really confused. Like, Pastor Jeff, an expert at something? I agree, it sounds silly, right? <laughs> I'm a fisherman. I don't know that a fisherman ever becomes an expert at it, but I really love it. But the thing that made me most nervous is when he started to talk about my secret for catching Corbina. Now, realizing that he's on film and being recorded, and my friend Bobby's in the house, he could have gave away my secret for catching Corbina to every single person on the planet Earth. I must admit, when I watched that last week, I, I did cringe a little. Even as a senior pastor, I cringed just a little and thought, no, don't do it. 
and then he didn't do it. I'm like, that's why he's my friend. And that's why he's a former senior pastor in great standing. And just the blessing of having who God has surrounded us with. Like, right, I have a senior pastor who's from the community, who many of you know, who just retired last year, who's basically out there kind of serving God. And he calls me one day and he says, Pastor Jeff, I just want you to know something. If I can be of any service to you at all as I'm retired, the one thing I know that God has tapped me on the shoulder is I'm not done preaching. I said, well, how do you feel about administration or being in charge of things? He goes, that I'm not feeling the call for, but I want to preach. I'm like, great, let me tell you about a new position I got. I'm in charge of everything, and I need some help preaching. And so just the fact that God has already rallied somebody to kind of work with me, and the fact that Bill, you know, Bill is so flexible in helping us do everything, and just kind of working with all the different pieces, I don't really have much fear about anything that's happening right now, but I do have a tremendous amount of excitement, and because of that, my family has warned me. Uh, when I'm excited, I have a tendency to talk even faster than normal, so I will slow everything down as much as I can. And when I say an interesting time as this, I want you guys to realize something. You remember uh, Esther in the Bible when she was kind of promoted up? She was promoted at such a time as this to a position of esteem. And I've found my heart kind of really falling back on that, right? You know, who is it that promotes? Who is it that, is it our elders promoting? Is God promoting? Is the life promoting? Who is it that really promotes? It's God who promotes. And so I want you to know something. For such a time as this, for the elders that we have, for the staff that we have, for myself and everyone included, for you, for you, the people sitting out there today, for you, the people watching out there today, for such a time as this, God's about to do something right now. Because if you guys know me and you know what I'm about, this is not my desired place in life. I like to be in the background. I like to push. I like to make people realize what life is all about. But for my family and for me to say, you know what, we're, gonna, we're willing to step into it. We're going to step into it with you. I'm going to walk with you as you walk with me. It's because I believe it's for such a time as this. So I think you should know something about me. I'm black and white and red. As a matter of fact, I even wore black and white today. I don't have any red on, but I'm black and white and red. Let me explain to you what's important to me. Salvation, salvation, and salvation, right? All I want to do is go. All I want to do is make. All I want to do is baptize, and all I want to do is teach. I feel like if I do that, if I stick to what God has called me, the black and white of my life, then red, it's covered in the blood of Christ. And it's not just covered, right? That's an important thing. It's tetelestide. It's paid in full. It's covered and paid in full. If we keep the main thing, the main thing, if the church can fall back with me as I fall back to a position of strength and say, hey, look, sometimes we get out there and sometimes we're doing things and we don't know why we're doing them. Okay, but let's fall back to a position of strength and then like Nehemiah, let's hold fast and do what we need to do. And that's why you see communion tables out here. One of the things I'm very excited to kind of just reinstill is we're going to do communion the first Sunday of every month from now until I'm no longer standing in this church. Because we need to remind ourselves on whose strength we're actually working on, on whose commission we're actually working on. And we need to be thankful about that. We need to start the month with Thanksgiving. So in a couple of weeks when it gets to Thanksgiving, we're going to do a standalone message on Thanksgiving. And if you have something right now that you can think would be such a blessing for the church to hear, I would hope that you would purpose to write it down on one of the connection cards or in the back seat of the cards, along with your prayer requests, your tithes, whatever you have at the end of the service, and put that in a connection box so that we can, in about a month, appropriately thank God for all the things that he's actually done behind the scenes this year, right? We need to get back to that kind of the testimonies, you know, where we're talking about what God has done. My friend Tony walked in the, the door today. And just talking with Tony, the last two weeks of his life, the last three weeks, I said, how are you doing? He says, 
I think a truck ran over me. I said, Tony, from everyone who knows you, it sounds like he backed up over you about three more times. I mean, you had COVID, you had major sickness, you had illness, you had everything. And the first place you are when you're better is where? Church. I'm also reminded that my friend Barbara, you guys see Barbara wheeling around with her little pusher right now because her golf cart's been taken from her. But Barbara breaks out of church, breaks out of her place that she's being carried for every week. She breaks out every week to be here, right? Why? Because there's no place she'd rather be, no place you'd rather be than here in his arms, here in his arms, right? I'm, I'm definitely someone who's visual, so I'm going to be incorporating a lot of song and a lot of pictures, so... I wanted you guys to realize something. There's a picture out there that's important in my life. I have two pictures in my office. One is, a, behold, I stand at the door and knock, that historic picture that's been around since the beginning of time. And another picture, which I'm about to have Mark place up on the screen. Hopefully you have that, Mark. I never even checked with this morning. But it's a picture from um, the Salvation Army. It's from Booth and uh, General William Booth. It's a vision that he had over and over and over again to the point where he actually called an artist in and said, this is what God has given me, and I can't get it out of my head. I need you to paint this vision down. And the title of the picture is called, Who Cares? It was so powerful for Booth that it ended up becoming his motivation to start the Salvation Army. And if we don't have it this morning, I'm going to be really sad, because now all of you are going to want to know what it looks like. But Marcus, if you have it, and it made, did it make it over? Oh my gosh, well, just keep working on it, and then when it pops up, I will stop what I'm doing today. I will, t- I will describe it for you, okay? It is a picture of a platform, a large platform on one solid rock. And on the platform is a multitude of people doing a lot of different things, including a fisherman, musicians, people eating, people exercising, the general overview of people kind of living life. That's the central point, the focus of the picture. Then surrounded by the picture is tumultuous waters. And within those tumultuous waters is a sea of people drowning, And what Booth saw in that is that we have become so kind of fixated on the life that we're living is that we're able to stay kind of on the platform and kind of socialize and kind of do life with the people that are doing life at the same place that we are, void any longer of seeing the actual world around them that's drowning and dying as they continue to go through the motion. And so in the title of the picture, Who Cares? It will be great when it comes up there one day. Uh, In the title of Who Cares, he wants to know, he's asking people, who cares? Can anyone else see this? Because if you can see what I see, how can we sit here and kind of go about life and kind of the mundane and talking about whatever? And I put that in because in my office every day when I walk in, that's what I remind myself. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Jesus is trying to knock on someone's door. Who can I help this morning? Who can I help today? Open that door and make that transition. And then I remind myself, who cares? Because I care, because it matters to me, because salvation is so significant in my life that everything I do and everything I say must be run through that filter. And that will be something, you know, going forward when it comes to any kind of activity we do, event that we do, anything like that. If we ever get to the point where we say, okay, why are we doing this? We've, oh, we've always done it. Okay, that's a reason. But is that the best reason? Does it help us go? Does it help us make? Thank you, Lord. Does it help us baptize? Does these? Okay. This will take a second for you to look at it. So just think about this. So this is a friend of mine who works at the Salvation Army. This is a picture that all the kind of CEOs have in their office. He gave me this picture and he said, we always think of you, Pastor Jeff, when we think of this. So I've had this in my office for about 20 years. But you see the platform? Within the platform is everyone kind of doing life, right? 
And yet on the outside of that platform, just, 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 just the outreach of their fingertips are these people that are in different states. Now, I want to walk over here only because I know I'm off camera, but you see the one guy in the boat? You see the one guy in the boat? He's like, help anyone. Do you, do you not see like over here? That has been my role for the last 29 years and 10 months in ministry until last week when the elders said to me, it's time for you to come off of that and get onto the platform and start rallying people from the front. I have always been out there polling for people. I've always been out there. Like from the movie Sixth Sense, I've always seen dead people. I've always seen people struggling in life, and it's always been something for me that keeps me up at night. But it's the thing that keeps me up at night with joy, church. I want you to realize that because there's no place I'd rather be, no place, Barbara, than here. On a Sunday, on a Wednesday, on a Tuesday, anytime they open the doors and there's a chance for me to say, thank you to God, I want to be here. So as I get ready to pray and start my, what is my official first message with you as a, as a senior pastor, I want you to realize something. I want to answer questions. I want to be encouraging like I've always been. I want to be relational. I want to do all those different things. But if you're not motivated to bring the lost to Christ, if you're not motivated to hear some actual testimonies, if you're not fired up to break down that sealed wall in there that allows those waters to be stirred and testimonies to echo forth from it. If that's not something that's kind of heavy for you, I may be a different cup of tea for you, and you may have to just pray about what God's asking you to sip from right now, because it is the driving force in my life. It has been, it will be, and I don't see it changing. So like Nehemiah Church, I'm asking you, join me as I join the Lord in holding fast. If this is the day that the Lord has made, then I'm going to rejoice and be glad in it. But I also have to choose this day who I will serve, right? As for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. And that's all we're going to do. We're not going to look behind, okay? We're going to look in front of us and we're going to serve the Lord. If that makes sense to you, if that sounds encouraging to you, then that's what we're about to enter into. Father God, I thank you for the morning and I thank you for the opportunity to just claim above all names, the reason why we do, the reason why we say, the reason why any of this makes any sense at all is because Jesus is Lord and Savior of my life. He's Lord and Savior of the people in here today who call him Lord and Savior. And a lot of people know of Jesus, and a lot of people know the power of his name, Father, but not everyone is so committed to him that everything that James, your half-brother, is trying to write about makes perfect sense. So even in the simplistic call of the message today, Father, I pray that if there's somebody out there from the very beginning, we purpose in advance 1 Corinthians 9, 16, for the sake of that one, Father, if there is someone out there today listening in person or however the message will get to them who does not know the name above all names, if they didn't know there was a reason for the season, if they don't know who Jesus Christ is, then Father, today, through the power of your word, would you speak truth into their life? Would you rescue them? Would you have us dive off the platform of our simple, comfortable life into the tumultuous waters that surround someone who's drowning and provide the life-saving effort that salvation is? Give them a new life. Give them a new heart. Give us that heart today, Father. We ask in your son's precious and holy name. Amen. I feel like I'm tired already. Is that good or bad? <laughs> so last week, Rod and, and Bill talked about some different things. Chapter one of James is awesome because it starts off with the simplistic thing, right? It's a letter to the first church. So it's the first words, like my first message. It's the first words that this first body gets to hear. And so chapter one, kind of just James talking to them kind of person to person. He's saying, hey, look, I was his brother. I had some issues in life but I want to tell you something that I think will help you out. 
If you can just listen twice as much before you speak, it will do something for you. It's going to afford you something, and this is what it will do. It will give you clarity on what you need to do. Because for James, if we're just hearers of the words and not doers of the words, it's a big problem. Matter of fact, it's such a problem that James is willing to actually challenge your faith in saying, if you hear God's word and it doesn't motivate you to do God's word, then I have a question, I have a question for you to answer. Is that real faith, right? He ended chapter one by saying, this is pure. This is true religion, right? If you hear and you do. Now that's a key component because it's a new perspective. If you think about what the Bible actually teaches us about our heart, it says that our heart is proverbially wicked, now, that's hard to hear about yourself. When, when I say, think about yourself before Christ, or even think about yourself now, what you struggle with, what do you struggle with? I struggle with this cord being behind me, trying to trip me every two seconds. Um, I will have to work on that in the future. The fact that someone tells you something about my life is wicked, right? That's pretty ominous, but that's what the Bible says. So if the Bible says it, whether we believe it, whether we understand it, whether we fully comprehend it, if the Bible says it, then it is, Right? Whether we can explain the Trinity with an egg or with steam or with water, if it says that it is, then it is. And it says this about you and me, that our heart is proverbially wicked. And because of that, something as simple as he's going to transition to in chapter 2, favoritism, which seems like a no-brainer, like really, we shouldn't. Something as simple as that is still going to be a problem because our heart wants what our heart wants. And a lot of time, our heart actually directs our head to think and do and act. And James is saying, guys, that's going to be a serious problem for me because if you allow favoritism in, what he's going to talk about, if you allow someone to receive something for no reason other than what you perceive to be true, then you are against Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. You are leaning exclusively into your own ways. You are leaning exclusively into your own understandings. And everything about what you're about to do is not of me. That's pretty harsh, right? Because the reality is, even as he talks about it today, the favoritism that's going to be shown to a man who has a gold ring and nice clothes, that favoritism is shown is still service, right? They're more than willing to serve that person, but the way that they serve is not even of God's heart. So let me read with you, and we'll transition into chapter two. Like I said, chapter one, individual to individual, me talking to John. Hey, John, this is what I want you to do. This is the simplistic nature of the call. Listen, 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 get clarity then speak, okay? Now, John, I'm done talking to you. Church, chapter two, let me talk to you about something that I see as happening. Chapter two begins. My brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. For if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and there also comes in a poor man in dirty clothes, And you pay special attention to the one who's wearing fine clothes. And you say, hey, you sit here in a good place. And you say to the poor man, you, you stand over there or sit down by my footstool. Then you have made a distinction amongst yourselves and have become judges with evil motives. So to become a judge with evil motives is a reference to your heart. You're falling into your heart's will. I want to back up, though, and start with that opening line. My brethren, each chapter of James... It starts with the same thing, my brethren, because it's important that you understand who he's talking to. He's talking to the first church. He's talking to fellow believers. He's not just talking to general people. James is not just a good book with good information to become a moral person, okay? 
Sometimes people like to take the fact that the golden rules and just about everything that's golden and good in life is from God's word. But James is specifically addressing a body of believers. He's saying, hey, look, I'm talking to you. Okay? This is not just good information that will make you a moral person. This is information that substantiates your claim to faith. You understand the difference, right? We can be a good person. There's good people out there that do nice things every day. But when they stand before the throne of God one day at the beam of seat of judgment, it's going to be a different ending for them. Thank goodness that me and you are not going to be part of that and trying to watch people reconcile. But I paid, my, you know, I paid a tithe. I, I voted. I, I washed my car once a week. You know, I, I did the laundry. I, you know, there's a lot of things that we can do that are good and moral, but they not, have nothing to do with our faith. Right? James is saying this has to do with our faith. So I want you to understand something. You're my brethren. I'm, your, I'm coming to you as a br- fellow brother in Christ. This is going to be a crucial component for you. Even though the world they lived in, I know right now we think, oh, we're pretty divided. Divided is nothing. 2,000 years ago, there was no one more divided than Israel 2,000 years ago. The haves and the have-nots were just, that's just the way it was. It wasn't just one side, west side versus east side. It was just the haves and the have-nots. So he's speaking directly to them at a time when their society was absolutely in the midst of this. And yet he's going to say, hey, look, there's a way that you're going to act that helps them understand how different we are. That we have something in us that's different and of a value. James is saying, hey, look, if you want to be a believer in God, then your heart has to change. Your heart has to be more like his. And scripture makes it perfectly clear. There is no partiality in God's heart. None. So God does not see people any differently. He sees all people the same. As the opportunity goes out, God sees all people the same. And because of that, if there's favoritism in your heart, then you don't get to see God in his splendor and the value that he placed on you. Now, I mean, think about it. We see the cross every week. By the way, Ben, who helped us get that all done, that's a pretty splendid cross, right? And I'm making reference to a song for Barbara. So let me go back to my visual side today. Stop what you're doing right now. Set your Bible down. Set your pin down. Let's take a brief moment. Let's do something visual. Close your eyes with me. James says, our glorious Lord, Savior, Jesus Christ. (sighs) Take a deep breath. Jesus Christ is glorious. He's seated at the right hand of God. He has died. He has risen from the grave. And he has been restored to the appropriate spot next to his father. And as they sit from the throne room of heaven looking down on us, I can't help but think of this song. I see the Lord seated on his throne, exalted. And the train of his robe fills the temple with glory. And from there and from their vantage point as they watch us, their children, they respond to one another just how precious we are, just how significant one soul is. And they do that with zero bias and total unconditional love. Now open your eyes. This morning, it's possible that as you and I walked in here, that if someone was accidentally sitting in your seat, you may have inadvertently had bias towards them. This morning, as I woke up, I thought, what if like a famous Dodger came to church? Wouldn't that be a great affirmation for a pastor like me who Loves Dodger, and then I thought, no, what happens if a giant or a Houston Astro came to church? What a burden that would be for me. 
Because the reality is favoritism and, plural, and, and, and the idea of being um, partial to somebody is naturally in us. And we've all kind of made peace with it. Now, I talk about what's simple to me. I'm a Dodger fan, so it's simple. But you have something in you that you're already biased to as well. But when I think about Jesus, it was interesting that that last song, by the way, that you guys did that. But when I think about Jesus, when I allow myself to posture myself like at the feet and look up, nobody around me bothers me anymore. Right? Because I'm no longer seeing the crowd around me in my eyes. There's something about what James is saying here, saying, if you want to be more like God, if you want to be more like Jesus and you have his heart, then first of all, you have to see where they are. That's a powerful opening line. The Lord Jesus, glorious Lord. That's a powerful line that he's talking about. He never saw his brother like that in real life. I'm pretty sure like my brothers were being the youngest brother and him being an older brother. Antagonistic seems to be the way that young brothers see life right? But that conversation where Jesus comes back after being raised from the dead and sees his brother. What's up, James? Jesus? Yeah. I can't help but think about how that changed him. So when he gets a chance to write, he's not just writing like James. The Spirit of God is breathing life into him, right? The Word of God is God-breathed. And he's saying something that's just a small little phrase, but it's like, you guys want to have this perspective, church? Then have this perspective because every time you see someone, if you see a fine-dressed Costa Mesa person come in and sit next to you, you shouldn't be excited. And if you see a Costa Mesa person that lives on the street, and trust me, I see them all the time. I'm riding out there. I'm getting a chance to see them all the time. You shouldn't be offended because I see them, God says, I see them the same. And there's the same opportunity afforded them in the cross that was afforded you in the cross, that their wicked heart would be changed by who Jesus Christ is and what he's done. Red and yellow, black and white, they are precious in his sight. Why did we stop singing Jesus loves the little children of the world? What, what, why, have we, why are we making church so difficult? Why are we allowing favoritism just to s- step into that? Even the songs that we have to sing are the favorite songs, right? We can, it can slip in in so many different ways. Thank you, Brad and, and Glenn, for singing a multitude, and Robin for singing hymns. Thank you guys for just keeping it broad and wide. Because we, we're so myopic on how we want to see things. Like we want to sit next to people and talk to people that are like us and think like us and eat like us. And, but that's not what Jesus said the kingdom of God is. Favoritism simply is defined as treatment given to someone at the expense of another. Treatment given to someone at the expense of another. How can that be an attribute of God? Salvador, how can that be an attribute of God? At the expense of another? Is anything about God at the expense of another? Step on someone so you can promote yourself up at any given time? Is that an attribute of God? But we just don't see favoritism like that. So why can't we remove it? Well, we could remove it if we understood the dangers of it. Now, we know it's sinful, and we allow it, and I've kind of minimized it with some of the ways that I kind of struggle with my Dodger thing. But think about it. Why do we ultimately allow favoritism to be part of our life? Why is this church just starting out already falling into it? He's not saying if it happens. This is not a warning if it happens. This is saying this is happening. 
This is part of the society, and you guys need to address this right now because this is not going to be attractive to people. This is not going to bring people to salvation. This is going to separate people. And the reason why it is is because it's easier to lean into our own understanding. It's easier. And in the end, we don't want to do the work. We want to lean into, Proverbs, lean on into your understanding. We want to lean into our own understanding. If I understand it and I have peace with it, then it's fine. And he's saying, nope, it's favoritism. And it brings people down and it puts you in three dangers. The three dangers that it puts you into when you willingly allow favoritism to be part of your life as first danger is this, is that you willingly start to live in opposition to God's heart. I don't know about you, church, but anything that you willingly, willingly, okay? Sometimes stuff happens. Sometimes some people say, Pastor Jeff, how can you live your life without sinning? You're driving down the freeway, there's a new billboard sign, and they basically want to put pornography in billboard signs. You know, you, you, you know we know what it is. It's not a, it's not a sin when, when stuff happens in life and you see it. The sin is when you return to it, Right? There's a big difference between stuff happening around you and people talking about horrific things. Uh, trust me, I'm in a police car a lot of times. I spend a lot of hours hearing and seeing a lot of horrific stories. That's not sin to me. The sin is if I willingly return to it. That's sin. And what James is saying here is this idea of favoritism, yeah, it's small. It's not that big of a deal. It seems like everyone should understand it. But when you willingly return back to it, you start to willingly live in opposition to God. And that is a dangerous place for you and me to be. Right? Why does the dog return to its vomit? You know, I used to teach student ministry for 20-something years, and every time I say the passage, the kids would all cringe. Oh, Pastor Jeff, that's the grossest thing in the world. No, the grossest thing in the world is that he returns to it. Vomiting can be a healthy thing when you're sick. Sometimes you've got to get rid of the sickness of whatever it was, and 20 or 30 minutes you feel better. That's body mechanics that's how god designed us can you imagine if you return to the place where that came up and then put that back in you because that's what willingness is when we know god has told us it's something a sin and we return to it and that's what we're doing that's gross it's disturbing and james is saying look that's what you're doing when you treat the fine dressed man with favoritism and you see the poor guy closest to the door and someone comes into your congregation, your building or whatever, and they see something and they see that and they're like, ha, what, what? Why, why is home, homeboy over here? Why are you here? I thought we were together in Christ, right? If you give someone respect because you perceive them deeming respect, then you are supernaturally usurping the authority of God who ultimately deems respect. Why are you giving man respect? Who is actually worthy of your respect? There's only one who can take your soul, the Bible says. See, like, when, I, when you have a problem, let's just fall back to this. When you guys have a problem, fall back to what the Bible says. That's what I do. Who can take your soul? God. So who is worthy of respect? God. When you willingly do that, when you willingly do that, you're not bringing people up. James says everything in the, out of your mouth, it either builds up or it tears down. You are servicing a philosophy that tears down. It's favoritism. It's partiality. 
David. You remember when David was selected? Jesse lines up his sons, tall, handsome, tall, handsome, next tall, handsome, tall, handsome. The lineup makes perfect sense. Solomon comes. Hmm, no, 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 no. Clearly no. Do you have anyone else? Well, yeah, I mean, some scrub out there watching the sheep covered in sweat and dirt. Little kid, scrawny little kid. Bring him in. Because you see people a certain way. And your favoritism says, this makes sense to you. But I want you to know something. That scrawny little kid who gives his life every day for the sheep, who faces the lion, who faces the bear, who faces whatever the world puts after those worthless sheep, that's someone after my heart. I mean, David would ultimately mess up pretty bad, right? You guys know the story. But did God ever change his perspective of David's heart? A man, he even says, a man after my own heart. That's encouraging to me. I don't know about you because if David can screw up, then I can screw up and still realize that God's not going to lose favor of my heart. He's going to change in my heart and he's make me a new creation in Christ, right? That's what the scripture says. I'm going to make a new creation out of you. I'm going to turn your heart of stone into a heart like mine. The second danger that it creates is the opportunity to conflict with God's value. To conflict or be conflicting with God's value. If God says, I love all people, for God so loved the world. Let's have a verse that everyone knows and says a million times. But what does it actually say? For God so loved the world. His world. He created it. He knows everyone in it. He added and subtracted in the times of Noah, and he left eight. They didn't know then what we know now about DNA and the fact that they paired everyone back and found out there's probably like this original 80 pairs. It's interesting how they stopped at 80 pairs, right? Because they were 72 pairs away from what? An original eight DNA. What? All mankind is related? Yeah, because it's his values. He created us. He knows what we're worth. And that's why he told his son, I want you to go give it all up for them because they're worth it. And Jesus says in the end, okay, not my will, but the Father's will be done, right? If it's possible in the garden, he's praying. I mean, this is a heavy load. Lord, can this pass? No, it can't pass. And I require blood for this type of sin. Whew. I don't want to mess with God's values. You want, to, you want to mess with God's values and be hypocritical? Because that's what we're doing. When we, when we say one thing and then we live out something else, we're living in hypocrisy. That's direct confrontation. Confrontation. God wants it to be simple. We want to make it complex. Somehow in the complexity, we feel more involved, you know? Well, if I'm doing all this stuff and making all this stuff happen, then I'm working for God. He's like, I, did I recruit complex people as a fisherman? Now an expert fisherman, thanks to Rod. But as a fisherman, is there anything? You guys know me. I mean, five years I've been doing ministry with you. You've walked with me. You've talked with me. You've seen me. Is there anything complex about a fisherman? Bobby, is there anything complex about us? We just want to fish. We don't care what the weather is. We don't care. A lot of times we don't care what the work we're supposed to be doing. We just want to fish. We're thinking about fishing all the time. So he goes and recruits these guys because why? Was it Socrates, the great orator Socrates? He could have. Pliny was available. 
Theophilus. I mean, he could have recruited people who that was their gifting. And then you would have said, well, I don't have to do ministry because I don't speak like that. He's like, no, it's simple. My values are this. Give me what you got and it's sufficient. Start with your testimony. That simple little what God did for you when you got saved, start with that. Third thing, you're acting in a way that's contrary to God's word. Now, James's letter is God's first words. Maybe they weren't thinking about the Bible and its generality then, but I still have to because I have God's word now and James is included in it, right? So James's first words in that letter were God's words. If you believe what I believe about God's word, that it's God-breathed, sharper than any two-edged sword, if God's word says it's true and James is saying that it's true, then they're acting contrary to it. James actually goes on to say, didn't God choose the poor to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom as he has promised to those he loved? And yet you're dishonoring the poor? Whose perspective do you actually think you're acting upon? My perspective is that's not, that's not how I feel. So who are, who are you acting on behalf of? Jesus had a very different perspective of the poor. Let me read verses 5 through 8 and then remind you of a couple of different things. Verses 5 through 8. Listen, my beloved, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom for which he promised to those he loved? But you, you have dishonored the poor man. Is it not the rich man who oppresses you and then drags you into court? Do, not, do they not blaspheme your name by which you have been called? However, if you're fulfilling the royal law according to the scriptures, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. Did Jesus choose the poor? How did Jesus feel towards the poor? How do you and I feel towards the poor? When's the last time you had a conversation with yourself about a poor person or a street person or a downtrodden person and ask yourself how you feel about them? Well, the last time for me was in seminary. Turns out in seminary at Azusa, where I was at, the last week of seminary before you graduate, they do a thing called Immersion Week. And in Immersion Week, they take everything that you learned about theology in school and they throw it straight out the door and they ask you to go down to L.A. to a lovely place called Skid Row, find a hotel in the area, and stay for one week. Me and 15 other Azusa students of very esteemed stature went to a very lovely hotel of non-esteemed stature, checked in in large groups, slept very little, usually stayed up in large pods doing security, and then had to immerse ourselves every day in the street culture, culminated by the fabulous open-door experience Friday night at what is like our bridge shelter. The open-door is the world-famous shelter-to-the-shelter of the street people of L.A. Friday night, so everyone who was from the streets came and we were the first 15 there, huddled in the back corner, strategically, all faced out in a circle for security purposes. As each person continued to come in the door, I found myself kind of breaking from the pack and kind of just enthralled in the way how people were acting. They weren't acting like street people. They were acting like people. And as the evening kind of went on, they kind of came in, moved their shopping cart to an area, and they started fiddling with stuff and were putting stuff on. And so I started asking the group, maybe we should actually start to mingle and start to see what's going on with the people. All of a sudden, someone gets on stage and says, 
Welcome to the world-famous Open Door Friday Night Karaoke. We were afraid of people coming in, getting ready to do karaoke. What were they getting out of their carts? I looked over, one man's putting on his jacket, says peaches. The other girl's putting on her jacket, says cream. And I'm like, they were putting on their outfits. They were putting, they were putting on their stuff to do their little... And for the next two hours, we sat there and we went from that tight little group to slowly dispersing till we were the front row yelling and screaming at the top of our lungs. It was the most glorious event of my early life in ministry where God allowed me to be immersed with a street culture of people to see them in a different light. And it changed my heart to this day about how I see people. Have you ever thought about Jesus' upbringings and how he sees people? Well, let me tell you something. Jesus was born where? In a manger. You think his family or friends were available for that? No, they were required to answer a census, so they left everything they had. In that manger, he had a lovely new crib, like my daughter who has the most amazing baby stuff on the planet Earth. We have to go to the specialized store, right? I mean, the stuff that they have today is so amazing. No, he had a feeding trough. Inside that feeding trough, at least he had some people, right? They were like celebrating his birth. Nope, he had animals. Well, at least some people finally showed up, right, when they found out that the carpenter from Nazareth is, you know, no, shepherds showed up. Ooh, shepherds. That's, that's kind of cool, right? Shepherd. No, shepherds are the lowliest form of society 2,000 years ago. Lowliest. Well, at least it got better for them, right, because his dad was a carpenter, so he made really good stuff. No, although Pliny, the great uh, theologian, said that the stuff that Jesus' family made, including Jesus, the carpentry work that he made, was still being used years after his work. It became, like, notorious and, like, quality stuff. turns out that carpentry was not a way to be rich or affluent. How do we know that? The scripture, Leviticus 12, talks about a time where Jesus became of age, was taken to the temple, and what was required for his purification was a lamb. Yet his mom and dad did not have a lamb to give. So because of that, if they could not afford a lamb, then they could give two turtle doves or two pigeons for that initial offering, a sacrifice. Jesus' family gave two pigeons for his sacrifice. Jesus went on to write, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but I have no place to lay my head to rest. Jesus didn't have to be poor, right? He has resources beside reason, but he made himself poor. He lived in that environment for a reason, because he knew something about those people that me and you are missing out on. See, they're regular people like me and you. We've just kind of forgotten. Favoritism has caused us to forget who people are, right? And there's someone that he actually identified with. He identified with them and knew this component about it. When you approach a poor person, when you approach a street person, when you approach a person who's going through difficulty and you approach them in humility and offer true services, not because it's a good and moral thing to do. Remember in the beginning of James, this is not just good and moral advice, but because this is who God's heart is. This is an act of true worship. Pure and true religion does these kind of things because this is an act of God's heart. They embrace you, right? You guys ever been to Mexico on a missions and just gone down there and had the blessing of having small children following you for whatever you can hand them, a dime, a nickel, a piece of candy, right? They embrace you. They, you come to them and you say, hey, you're a value to me. 
I value you, and they embrace you. And that's what Jesus did. He embraced them. And Jesus' brother James was there. So he saw the indifference that people were being treated and said, hey, I grew up in that same environment. This is not how my brother treated people. And so I'm going to call you guys into accountability as a congregation and say, this is not how you should be treating people. How do things change? As I mentioned to you a couple weeks ago, when you drive through your neighborhood with your windows up and your radio on in such a way as to get to your garage to open it and close it, when you drive in that way, what you're saying is all these other potential valued people in your life somehow just don't either meet the standard or you've, you spent all you had for today, and so the best thing that you can do is go home and replenish. You underestimate the value of stopping and rolling down your window and simply saying, hey, neighbor Jim, how are you doing? What's happening with you? Right? You invite someone into your life. You invite yourself into their life, and you simply say, is everything okay? <clears throat> I haven't seen you in a while. You've been okay? Do you love your neighbors as you love yourself? I mean, Rod said an interesting fact, guys, about how much time we spend in the mirror. So I think we love ourselves pretty good, right? Do we love our neighbors pretty good? Because if not, then I would assume that you love yourself poorly. And if you love yourself poorly, you don't see yourself with God's heart either. The Christian life will either drive someone to the cross or drive them from it. The Christian life has the opportunity to be the light at your feet that leads on a path, right? You guys ever been somewhere at nighttime? You gave your kid a flashlight? Shines it down on the thing? Super beneficial, right? Shining the flashlight down the path. Hey, follow the path. Junior turns around, shines it in your eyes. How helpful is that? Do you, is anyone moving down the path at that moment? But that's what James is saying here. It's like we're living our lives, like we're using our Christianity like to blind people. We're not leading them anymore. We're not helping them proceed we're actually impeding them. They're, it's not moving in the direction that it should. If your friends and your family don't know the reason that you got up this morning is because you love Jesus Christ so much and you're so grateful for your salvation that the only appropriate thing that you could do this morning was put on whatever you could put on, brush whatever you could brush, and go there like my dear sister Barbara would say, you know what, I don't know what the rest of the week holds. My buddy Merv used to always say, I don't know what the rest of the week holds, but I know there's no place I'd rather be than here in his arms. This last part of this verse is the great summarizing. It's uh, verses 9 through 13. And I want to read this and, and kind of tie it all up in a big bow for you. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin. Okay? Partiality favoritism is sin unequivocally undeniably no ifs ands buts or ors it is sin whatever form that you're showing and allowing it to be part of your life it's sin and those three dangers are all coming into play if you are convicted by the law as a transgressor whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point becomes guilty of all of it of all all the law for he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not commit murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but you commit murder, you have become a transgressor of all the law. So speak and act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. 
For judgment will be merciless to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Okay, partiality, favoritism. Super simple, right? But the fact that we're kind of making peace with something that in its simplest form is sin and allowing it to be part of our life, right? Then all those other dangers are now creeping in and we're actually jeopardizing the very foundation that we were trying to stand upon. Anyone who's ever built a house will tell you, you know, the house is going to be shaken at some point and you're going to find out what kind of foundation it was put on. And James is saying, hey, look, church, you're just starting out, but this is going to jeopardize the foundation of faith that we're trying to build. This is going to jeopardize the faith growing in such a way that people have no choice but to see Jesus in a true light, and now they're going to see him in a, in a blurry light, in a foggy light. This is not who he intended us to be. Favoritism in any form allows us to fail in the least of things. It's simple. It's, it's, how can it be after God's heart, right? We talked about that. There's no, no favoritism in God's heart. And if we fail in the least of these things, then we fail in all of these things. Failing in the simplest things and kind of poo-pooing and saying, oh, this is no big deal. But that kind of, it's no big deal. It kind of minimalizes our entire faith. Everything is a big deal to God, right? That's why there's only four big deals. Go, make, baptize, and teach. If we compromise anything and any component of that, we compromise his death, burial, and resurrection. If you're doing works because you feel you owe him that, then you're missing out on you get to do works because he already did that for us, right? He did that before you knew him. He knew us in our mother's womb. He knit us together. He knows all these different things about us, and yet he still died for us. He said, I see value in you. It's within the foundation of our faith to either success, to have success, or to fail based on the simplistic understanding of sin in its general nature. Sin, if we willingly accept any kind of sin in our life, we return to the very thing that makes us sick. So what happens? What happens if we allow idolatry in our life or favoritism in our life or just to see man as more important than God? Well, the Bible says, if you fear men more than you fear God, you might immobilize yourself, and then the very actions that you're required to take or speak will then go quiet. Proverbs 29 says, the fear of man lays a terrible snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. The word for snare there is pretty powerful. It says that once you're entangled in it, it's very difficult, if at all possible, to remove. Being afraid of man putting man elevated above God, any aspect that we use of a fellow fallen brother or sister is not a place that we want to be. God's freeing us from that. He's saying, hey, look, I want to help, help you face the fear that some man has something over you and realize something, that all men are created equal in God's eyes. By the way, when I say men, I mean men and women. All people are created equal in God's eyes. All people are available to be healed by the cross. And if you have real faith, it will produce real works, not because you owe God something, but because you get to tell God something every time that you do a real work. Every time you break out of your care facility on a Sunday, you get to tell those people, I'm going to do something today that is the reason why I survived Monday through Saturday, right? The high calling in my life 
Tony. The high calling in my life is that whatever I do Monday through Saturday, I get to substantiate Sunday with my fellow brothers and sisters. When we come together and say, hey, look, you got problems, I got problems. You got health issues, I got health issues. There's none of us that don't have something going on. But the one thing that we have driving this bus is that we have this great commission over us that says, I still got to go. You still got to go. We still got to make. And if we do that, Instead of judging people, right, and becoming evil because of our wicked heart, we have mercy. And mercy triumphs favoritism. I'm going to call the band up, call the worship team back up here this morning. And um, we are going to take some time this morning when we have a chance to do communion to just slow things down a little bit this morning. Communion for me has always been a really awesome thought because I need to remind myself like whose strength and whose power I'm actually operating by. We all have a lot of time and energy in life. We all have a lot of time and energy that we spend during the week doing a lot of different things. But when communion happens at the beginning of the month, which it will be happening for us, I hope that you will slow your roll enough to see the Lord seated on his throne, exalted. And in that moment, not be worried so much about who's on your left and who's on your right and who's in your seat or not in your seat, but instead be encouraged by the fact that we have a great work to do, and it will come at a great cost. Nothing about our faith was free, and nothing about Christianity is easy. I mean, amen, I mean, I talked to a couple of you this morning. If you signed up for Christianity because someone told you, hey, come to God, accept Jesus, and everything kind of then you need to just come up and pray today. Find one of the elders, find myself. We need to pray with you today just to rearrange your kind of perspective. That's not what you signed up for. Nothing about faith was sign on the dotted line and happy-go-lucky is right around the corner. I mean, for many of us, the day we signed on for faith, like we initiated this. In this life, you will have. Church, we took on Revelation, and it's never, it hasn't been the same in this church since we took it on. I'm not asking it for it to get easier. All I'm telling you is, if it's for God, if it's for building his kingdom, then it's worth it. Remember what you labor for. Remember what I'm laboring for. Remember that we gather each week and we put it all in for 1 Corinthians 9, 16, for the sake of the one. When this church has the privilege again of watching someone come forward or someone online come forward and make a profession of faith, when the testimonies start to be affirmed again in here, when... The attaboy Jesus and attaboy God, thank you for being who you are and what you've done, starts to be spoken again loudly in here. You will all start to feel what I feel when I wake up every morning. It's like, this is the day that the Lord has made, man. I'm going to rejoice and be glad in it. I'm going to choose this day who, who I will serve. But as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. There's no other place that I'd rather be. And I'm glad that you're here with me this morning. As the, uh, as the band sings, I'm going to have, can you guys come up and serve communion? Byron and Diane, can you guys come up? Um, who else is in here from the LD? You Connie? You got Connie? No Connie? Tom, can you come up and serve? All right, so the elders, I'm going to have the elders come up and serve, and then, then I will be up here. If you guys need to pray during communion, if you want some quiet time, whatever it is that you got, there's always usually elders in front, elders in back, wherever you need to go. Find someone to come up to. Take your time this morning as you come up. And like I said, purpose in your heart, seeing Jesus seated on the throne. Come and have communion with us.
Simple, right? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Communion is always one of those interesting things for me. I, I both love taking communion and I also... I've spoken with people about it, what it's like to stand on behalf of advocacy of God and speak about something as simple as some boudin bread or sourdough bread or just a little piece of bread that means so much more to us, Right? This is the body of Christ that was given for us. And when he gathered with those guys, he knew that they were going to be asked to do some really difficult things, right? I mean, for the original group, they all ended up dying pretty much as martyrs. And some of them even, through the power of the body of Christ, said, you know what, I don't even want to be hung in the same direction as you. Just the sense of unworthiness, like what a small piece of bread means. But it means something to us. Be careful about taking it if you haven't made that affirmation of salvation because there are those who know who Jesus is and know that he is God's son, but yet they don't call him Lord and Savior, right? That would be the demons. They know who he is. But we reverentially awe Proverbs 1-7 in the fear of the Lord because we take him in because we need this. And I, I don't know about you, but I desperately need this strength. So he did that. He gathered with his friends and he says, every time that you do this, take this body given for you and do this in remembrance of me.
And after they had eaten, he took the cup. Not as red as the color I mentioned to you, more purple, but symbolic nonetheless of what it is. The blood of Christ, freely given for you and I. And he told them to take this cup. It's for you, and every time that you get to take this cup, be reminded, I gave my blood. I did not take it. I gave my blood for you. I willingly went to the cross for you. I willingly lived poor for you. That you would have the proper perspective of my Father's heart and how much he loves you. Drink this in remembrance of me. As we finish with a time of worship, I'm going to have some of the elders come back up here. There'll probably be some in the back as well. If there's something that God's putting heavy on your heart this morning, if there's a simple prayer request or just something that's just God's making clear to you and you need to share that, I've had some people already share with me some Thanksgiving items and some things that they're excited about. Please take the time to write those prayer requests down. Please take the time to write those things about affirmation that would be a blessing to the church and in the upcoming services. Take the time to write those things. Those can all be placed in the back white boxes at the end of service. And if there's anything else that you need prayer for right now, just know that we're available. Randy, can you and Patty come up here? I'll get one set of elders up here. Richard and Joyce, you guys want to come up here too? Tom and Terry, you're going to go to the back? Tom, you go in the back? Any of the other elders that are in here that I'm not seeing would like to come up? All right. So we're just going to go into time of worship this time. And if you have something you want to pray about, please come up and pray with us.
my gosh. Amanda Lynn, Jeff, thank you for... Is, let's thank Jeff for the mandolin this morning. My gosh. I'm feeling more country in here every Sunday. Um, I love you guys. Thank you guys for... If you have anything you want to hang out with afterwards, talk, pray about, we're going to be here. Uh, this is what it's going to be. Nothing more, nothing less. Find your friends this week. Find someone who doesn't know the name of Jesus saves. Get them, rally them, bring them to your life group, do whatever you have to do. But for the sake of the one, I commission you all for the sake of the one, go find that one, bring them back in here, and let's share some testimonies next time around about how good God is. God bless you all. Have a wonderful Sunday. We'll see you next week.